Now, we are again in Philippians, as you can see. Um, And this time the sermon will be taken from uh, verses 18, second half of 18 to verse 26. But obviously I read more of it to give us a bit more of a context. You know, we, we can see actually here that Paul is having a bit of a hard time of it, can't we? Um, clearly, um, he's in prison. Clearly, there are people who he would consider to be brothers and sisters who, who are trying to afflict him in some ways. Um, and yet, he, he, he rejoices. That is completely counter-cultural to us, isn't it? It's counterintuitive. I'm sure most of us find the whole thing just a little bit strange. And part of that is because now, you know, it's probably true of all ages, but particularly now, more than ever, comfort and convenience are the overwhelming priorities in people's lives. You know, when you get home, just, just, just have a look around you. Look at the last thing that you bought. Pretty much everything we own is designed to make our lives more comfortable or more convenient somehow aren't they? You might, you know, don't even wait until you go home. Just have a think about what's in your pockets or what's in your handbags. Everything in there is basically designed to make your life more comfortable or more convenient somehow, aren't they? And for most of us, we have gotten so used to a life of comfort and convenience that we struggle, we really do struggle to face up to discomfort or suffering in any way. We don't particularly want to see suffering. We don't particularly want to be made aware of suffering. And we certainly don't want to risk having to suffer ourselves for anything, do we? This plays itself out in all sorts of ways in our personal lives, from choosing to ignore news about people who are living in difficult situations you know, which we sometimes may even try to rationalize that they somehow de- deserve to live in the situations that they live in. To being so preoccupied with our comfortable lifestyles that we would do literally anything to try to maintain it. To being so used to our comfortable lifestyle, we are completely willing to break our moral code in order to maintain this comfortable lifestyle so that we don't have to go through a time of hardship. You know, when I was preaching last week, I shared a little bit about how a couple of years ago I found a film so emotionally exhausting I simply couldn't bring myself to watch it again. Even though I know it's an excellent film and worth re-watching. And if this is the case then, if in general we find it hard to acknowledge situations where people might be suffering and we ourselves don't want to suffer, then I wonder... What do you think about Paul and his lifestyle as you read this letter? I think we find it pretty incredible, don't we? To the point where I think we find it really difficult to imagine why anybody would live the way he does. You know, we know from the letter that he's imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Not only that, that there are people who would consider he, he would consider to be brothers and sisters who are sort of trying to hurt him in some way. And despite his imprisonment, despite all that, he says he rejoices. That is 
completely counter-cultural to what we expect. And as we read through the whole letter, we realize just how much he is suffering. And yet, when the church at Philippi was clearly in need of some help to settle a dispute between two prominent members in the congregation, he doesn't hesitate in penning them this extremely detailed letter to help and encourage them. And not only that, he was willing to send one of his best helpers, Timothy, to go and help them. For whatever reason, Paul doesn't seem to just mind suffering. He seems to be able to rejoice even in the midst of it, even to the point where additional suffering, additional trouble seems to not be a bother for him at all. And it's here in Philippians 1, verses 18 to 26, that Paul shows us three particular things why he is able to not only live through extreme suffering, but to choose to do so for the sake of the gospel. And not only to choose to do so, he's able to rejoice in it. So the first thing we'll see that is that he's able to live and choose and even rejoice in the suffering because he can trust in a future deliverance. Secondly, he's able to live this way because he doesn't fear death. And thirdly, he's able to live this way because living this way means fruitful labor himself. So the first thing then we see is that he trusts in a future deliverance. And that's really obvious from the get-go, isn't it? From verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He knows that one way or another, God would deliver him. But the question is, exactly what does this deliverance look like? And also, how does it come about? So first, we're going to see two things about how it comes about. And then we're going to go see further about what this deliverance actually looks like. So firstly then, how does this deliverance come about? Well, the first thing to note is that it comes from prayer. That's obvious enough from the text, isn't it? I know that through your prayers, it'll come about. And so for whatever reason, Paul, even in his extreme time of suffering, he knows that people are praying for him. And I wonder if we can say the same about ourselves. As all of us go through times of difficulty, as all of us go through times of suffering, I wonder how often we can genuinely say that there are people who are praying for us. Now, from the beginning of Philippians, we see how you know, Paul is concerned to pray for the Philippian Christians. And from that, we can see how he then sets an example for faithful elders and pastors to pray for the congregation of his people. And more than that, we see how, because actually Paul doesn't root his reason for praying in his apostleship or in his eldership. Actually, he roots his reason for praying for other Christians on the fact that he is a Christian. So as Christians, we are supposed to be praying for one another. 
because of all those things, we know that prayer is a top priority for Paul. How true is that for all of us? You know, a few weeks ago, I, I, I challenged the congregation to pray more regularly for each other. I wonder how many people actually took it up. But more than that, I, I think we also have an additional difficulty um, in light of our current context. I think for British Christians, well, maybe not British, maybe English Christians would be fairer to say, we're so concerned with our stiff upper lip that we simply don't feel it possible to share with others when we're suffering or going through a particular difficulty. And, you know, I've heard all kinds of excuses for not sharing honestly when people are struggling. And, you know, it, it usually boils down to something along the lines of, do you know what? I just don't want to trouble other people with this problem that I've got. And even for somebody as me who, who studies in a, a, a Christian institution, training to be a pastor with other people who are training to be pastors, you know, for loads of us, we struggle to share with one another genuinely when we're struggling. Now, why is that? At the root of it all, I wonder whether it's pride. We just don't want to admit to other people that we are people who are hurting, that we are people who are struggling. And we are so desperate to keep up this facade that we've built up for ourselves, that we're really doing okay, that we ignore Paul's commands to us, that actually we are supposed to be praying for one another, but implied behind that is that we've got to know how to be able to pray. We've got to be able to share with one another our struggles and our difficulties so that we know how to pray for one another. Now, it's really clear, isn't it, that Paul is expecting that prayer would be a factor in his deliverance. But, you know, somebody, something's got to underwrite those prayers. You know, if we're simply praying to nothing, then the prayers are pointless. And that's why the second thing that Paul points to is that it needs to, we, we need to be helped by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 19. In other words, then, this deliverance can only come through divine intervention. You know, if we're just praying and praying and praying, and at the end of the day, there is no God, then what's the point in prayer? But we know, don't we, that there is a God who loves us and who cares for us and wants to hear our prayers and answer them. And so in times of trouble then, I wonder, what do we rely on? You know, most of us, as we suffer, as we go through difficult situations, what are our kind of go-to tools for dealing with this suffering? You know, my suspicion is that for most of us, we simply go to what we naturally have. That we would just say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm able to talk my way out of this particular situation. I'm able to... Um, rely on my savings in order to get through this situation. Or, you know, I'm, I'm able to rely on myself in one way or another to get out of this situation. 
And yet that is not the example that Paul sets us, both in here in Philippians um, and in other places. So in Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6, for example, we know that actually, humanly speaking, Paul was better qualified than anybody. He had more bragging rights about who he is and how able he is than anybody. And yet those things are counted for nothing for him. We know too from Acts 16 that actually Paul was a Roman citizen. And so in his context, that could have got him anywhere. And that could have got him out of any scrapes. And yet he never once relied on the fact that he's a Roman citizen and all the um, comfort that could have afforded him. Rather, he continuously relied from God, on God. And, you know, especially here, strikingly, he does not anticipate his deliverance to come from his own strengths or abilities, but rather from the prayer of others and, more importantly, on the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that? Fundamentally, it's because the Holy Spirit is the only person that can give him the kind of deliverance that he's really looking for. The kind of deliverance that means that he can be unashamed and the kind of deliverance that honors Christ. Those are his primary concerns, as we can see from the end of verse 20. His deliverance is not concerned with deliverance from the situation that he's in, but rather for Christ to be honored. You know, we all know from personal experience, don't we, that actually we can talk ourselves out of situations. You know, there are times where our savings can kick in and help us in all sorts of ways. And we know that actually for, you know, the, the more fortunate amongst us, that at the end of the day, if things are really hard, we can run back to mummy and daddy and they'll bail us out. Not all of us have those tools um, to help us cope. And, you know, that, that's, that's really sad. But for many, that is the case. And for many of us, we, we recognize that actually, you know, our own abilities kind of get us quite far. But why is that? You know, the reason is that God is gracious to everybody. You know, we're told in Scripture that he allows rain to go on, that both the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous for everybody. God's common grace means that in the world, we operate with some natural rules that, that work. Now, God is the one who oversees it. He allows it to happen. But at the end of the day, that there's in, in sort of from human experience, it seems to work just naturally without us having to think too much about it. And I think that's particular, that, that, that probably poses a particular problem if you're not a Christian tonight. You know, maybe you live in the city, you are successful by your own power, by your own abilities, you have grown tremendously in your career, you think everything is fine. And from that, you conclude. God doesn't care if you are, if you believe in him or not. He'll continue to bless you regardless. But the sad thing is you are reliant on him for all those things. And yet you continue to throw them in his face 
by not acknowledging him as the one who gives it to you. And the thing is, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you acknowledge God or not, yes, it's true, you can affect change in the world and in your life. But there's perhaps one thing that we simply cannot do in our own strength. Or rather, it doesn't even look like we're going to be able to do it in our own strength. And that's to honor Christ Jesus. We know, don't we, that the work of the Holy Spirit is never to point to himself, but to Christ. Scripture is clear on this issue. And it's most clear in John 15, verses 7 to 14, where Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to, send, to help his disciples. And where we read that when the, tr- when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me, that is Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. But the question is then, what does glorifying Jesus look like? Well, overwhelmingly scripture, that the work of the Holy Spirit seems to be linked with helping individual Christians to grow in holiness and godliness, especially in times of suffering. Now, this is clear in some of Paul's writings. So if you can turn with me then to Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. So Romans 5, page 942. And we read verses 3 and 5, 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or perhaps even more famously in Galatians 5, where Paul gives us the list of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, then, the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ, and in our lives... You know, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not necessarily something mythical or mystical. You know, it's concretely played out in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It means growing in holiness. It means growing in things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all in the faith, all in the face of suffering. In light of this then, let's go back to the prayer for deliverance. What should we really be praying for when we pray for ourselves when we're suffering and for others who are suffering or even when we're asking others to pray for us in face of our suffering? In light of what we just talked about, in light of the work of the Holy Spirit, of course we want to be praying that people won't suffer. Of course we want to be praying for people to be delivered out of the hardship that they're experiencing. But way more important than that, we want to be praying for people and we want to be asking for people to pray for us, to grow in faithfulness, to grow in our Christ-likeness, to grow in our gentleness, kindness, goodness, patience, peace, joy, love, 
We want to grow in all of those things in face of extreme suffering. You know, I, I was extremely encouraged just now in, uh, in, in the prayer meeting that you know, as, as a congregation, we spend a bit of time praying for a little girl who looks like she's going to be losing her leg from the thigh down. That's not the bit that encouraged me, um, you know, just to be clear. Um, of course, we want the little girl to be healed so that she doesn't have to have that amputation. But I was extremely encouraged by the fact that, you know, even before hearing this sermon, that the congregation um, was able to pray that even in light of this suffering, even in light of this particular difficulty, that we were able to pray that this little girl and her Christian family would be able to face this suffering with joy, with love, growing in faithfulness, letting this opportunity help them to grow in their faith. That's incredible. That as a congregation, we have this in the DNA, um, but it's something that we can definitely grow more in. Isn't that amazing? But the fact remains that in our context today, it is totally countercultural. This kind of thinking, like if, if, if you're not a Christian and you've just heard all that, I'm, I'm pretty certain you think that this is really weird. If you're not a Christian and you were at the prayer meeting just now, I, it would have blown your mind that we were able to pray that way. And yet, this is exactly what Paul tells us to do. And basically... The reason that he can do this to us, that he can say this to us, is for two things. Firstly, he tells us that dying is gain. Death is somehow better. And secondly, that living is for fruitful labor. So firstly then, the first, the first factor in all of this, you don't have to fear death because death is gain. Now, in the UK, I know we moan about it sometimes, and we may wish that the NHS was better run. But the fact is, we spend close to £125 billion on the National Health Service. That is £125 billion to keep people living longer and better. That means that as a nation, we think it's a good thing for people to live. We don't think that dying is better. Why is that? Well, the first thing to say is that here in the UK, we've had a really long history of Christian influence. And Christians value human life. We believe that all of us have been made in God's image, each and every one of us, which means that every human life is valuable. And Nuren Bevan, the, the chief architect of the NHS, said this, I'm proud of the National Health Service. It's a piece of real socialism. It's also a real piece of Christianity. For Bevan, the NHS is a natural outworking of the nation's Christian faith. And thank God that we're still able to enjoy this legacy, even as the nation veers more and more towards a godless secularism. That said, however, a concern for human life is not limited to Christianity. You know, plenty of non-Christians think that human life is valuable and worth saving. So, actually, Taiwan, where I, was, where I was from, was born, and, you know, it's basically a pagan country. Even they have an NHS. So, the question, and, you know, as you dialogue with some of your friends who may be atheists, 
they value the NHS. So why is it then that people value life? And fundamentally, I think it's because as a society, it's not so much that we value life, but that we fear death. You know, for atheists, more than atheists, for, for, for people who believe that there is simply nothing beyond this life, and that, you know, nothing that is, that you can't touch or see or smell or taste, nothing exists outside of this tangible sphere of life. For them, death is just a big gaping void. There is nothing after any of this. No wonder they would fear death. No wonder you fear death if you believe that after this, that's it. It's just a big nothing. And actually that means that you know, you, you want to spend everything you have to preserve your own life. Of course it does. Because in this life, you've got things to enjoy. You've got comfort to enjoy. But the question is, when that comfort disappears, what are you left with? And that might very well explain why you think your life is important. It does not explain why the nation should spend $125 billion on preserving human life and helping them to grow better. It just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, it's, it, I'm not trying to tell you that if you're an atheist, you're, you're a bad person, you don't care about human life. It's simply that if you do, great. But it's inconsistent with your worldview. But for Christians, what do we have to look forward to? We read earlier, didn't we, from Revelation 19, where we have this glorious picture of all the Christians in heaven praising God for all eternity, appreciating Him, worshipping Him for His great mercy to us. We get to spend eternity with the God who loves us, with the God who we love. And we get to praise Him forever. What a great privilege we have to look forward to. And that is why Paul in this passage can say that death is gain. Because if he dies, it is much better for him. Because whilst in this life he has to suffer, he has to go through all kinds of trials and tribulations, there's a time that he can look forward to where he can be in heaven with the Lord Jesus, enjoying him, praising him forever, where there is no more pain, where there is no more trials, and there is no more tribulations. Where, as we sung earlier, if we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That is the amazing hope that the Christians have in death. And faced with this then, I just want you to consider this if you're a Christian tonight. Death. Basically the worst thing that could happen to you. Death. The worst thing that anything, anybody can do to you is the best thing that can happen to you. 
is the best thing that can happen to you. Now, if, if we held that earnestly, a, a potential logical conclusion that we can draw from that is the minute we become a Christian, the best thing for us to do is simply to top ourselves. You, you can see the logic of that, can't you? We become a Christian, we kill ourselves, and we're in heaven. Brilliant. But that is fundamentally against what becoming a Christian is all about. Because as we've seen over and over and over again in Philippians, is that becoming a Christian means not living for yourself anymore, not living for your good anymore, but for the good of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and by extension, for the good of God's people. And that is why we choose life. Because life is for fruitful labor. We see this clearly in verse 24 onwards, don't we? Let's read that again and just remind ourselves. Verse 24 of Philippians 1. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He does not live for himself. He lives for them. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So firstly, he lives not because it's better for him to live. Now, So often we come to a conclusion that we should live for us. No, no, Paul says he lives for the Philippians. He lives for other Christians and for their progress and joy in faith. And I think we have in here a tremendous potential to apply it to ourselves and to apply it to the society that we live in. You know, when, we, when we dialogue with our non-Christian friends, especially when it comes to the issues, the, the end-of-life issues, when people are talking to us about euthanasia and how actually they feel like because people are suffering, they're in pain, they should be allowed to commit suicide to end their pain. Now, I wonder, as Christians, what, what is your response to this? You know, it, it seems like the most compassionate thing to do, isn't it? To help them end their suffering. And yet we're told here that for Paul who was suffering, for Paul who was a burden to himself and to others, for him, he continues to live for the sake of others. Now, you know, I love old people. I really do. I love hanging out with them because there is so much wisdom and there is so much love that comes from living an entire life with Christ. But one of the things that sort of occurs, that, that recurs in my um, dialogue with some old people in my time, and I'm thinking of two people in particular, um, whenever I talk to them, they're, they're brimming full of love for Christ. And, to the po- and it, it's touching to see that they are so in love with Christ that they simply cannot wait to go and be with him. And actually, they spend an awful lot of their time basically complaining to God that, you know, why is God not taking me yet? Why is God allowing me to sit here in my loneliness 
in my illness, in my disabled-bodiedness? Why is he letting me stay here and not letting me go to him? You know, phrased in that way, it, it seems like God is a cruel God who is refusing to put people out of their misery and giving them the best gift they could possibly have. And yet what we have here is a picture of, actually, no, these old people, or these people who are suffering, they live not for themselves, but for us. The fact that I can go and visit these guys and see Christ's love in them, that's hugely encouraging for me. You know, I progress in my faith and my joy in the faith by visiting them. God is keeping them around for my benefit, for your benefit. And I wonder, when you go to visit people who are perhaps needy or suffering, what are your thoughts? What's your approach to them? Are they simply people that need your help? Are they a burden on the church's resources and time? Or are they placed in the life of the church by God to help you grow in your faith and in your joy in the faith? And what does this mean then in our dialogue for our society? The people who are suffering, we understand that they suffer. We live in a sinful world that is full of things that shouldn't happen. The suffering is hard. We should never discount that. Yet they exist and they're here so that as a society we can learn better how to care for them. And Christians should be the first people to model that to the world. And as we close then, let's think about this. As we look forward to our deliverance, not so much from the situations that we're in, not so much from the difficult suffering that we might be going through, the trials and tribulations. We look forward to the deliverance that means glorifying Christ in our ongoing sanctification, in our growing in holiness, in love, in faithfulness, in self-control. As we look forward to that deliverance, knowing that death is nothing. That death, the worst thing that could possibly happen to us, is actually the best thing that can happen to us. Because in death, we can be with Jesus. That frees us up to live the life that Jesus has called us to. To live a life that means that we can care for others and that we can show them love over and above what anybody else can show them. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word that shows us these glorious truths that you are truly awe-inspiring and that you give us a vision of the Christian life that is far above anything that any human can even dream of, Lord. Father, we pray for those of us who are suffering that you would help us to not turn inwards, to 
think more and more of how much we're suffering, but rather we turn outwards. We would not consider ourselves a burden to others, but rather a chance for them to grow in faithfulness and love. And Lord God, we pray that for those of us who are perhaps going through an easier time, who are thinking about how we can best help others, we do not do so from a proud vantage point. That we do not do so from you know, a, 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 a perspective that says that we're somehow better than them. But Lord God, we pray that as a body of your people, we would weep with those who weep, we would laugh with those who laugh, and that as one part of the body hurts, Lord, we all hurt together. We pray that you would give us a real sense of these truths in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.